quick note on the audio quality of this episode. It has been roughly 20 years since I've done anything in radio, and I think it's worth noting that I'm just working with the gear that I have on hand. So my mic might sound a little bit tinny at times, but I think the information here is still pretty good, and I will make efforts to improve that audio as we go. Welcome to the Hunter Farmer Artisan Podcast. My name is Ryan Garrett. I will be your host. Today I have a very special guest, uh, and it might be a little bit of a curveball for a lot of people because the next guest is my wife, Jillian Garrett. I want to talk to some people who are involved involved in the fight for conservation, but that you don't often hear from. And Jillian, welcome to the show. Why don't we hear from you? <laughs> well, for starters, I loathe public speaking, and it is only because you are my comfort object, and I have a deep abiding love for you that I am here. Plus, as my husband, you are far better able to bribe me than other podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss what uh, meal I'll prepare for you after this. Hopefully a bear. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, you just need to get one down. So today I wanted to talk to you because you are a published author, you are an outdoor photographer, and you have an interesting pathway that brought you into hunting as a whole, and you do a lot of behind-the-scenes work when it comes to this fight that we're currently having with the WDFW. So tell me a little bit about your background when it comes to how you were raised. Were you raised as a hunter? <laughs> Absolutely not. I grew up in a really urban setting, classic, you know, always got our food from the grocery store, Costco membership. We didn't even garden. I can't even remember my grandmother gardening, really. Um, and I always wondered, where does my food come from? I know I buy it from the store, but where does it actually come from? And what costs are associated with getting it to me? And I don't mean financial costs. I mean, what is the cost as far as, you know, land degradation, wildlife displacement, and, you know, loss of wildlife itself? What are those costs? That eventually led me into farming. And... Even that wasn't enough. I wanted to know where my protein came from. And uh, we did raise livestock for meat for a little while. And I just wasn't satisfied with that. We didn't have enough space to really raise enough protein annually for our needs without really degrading the land. Yeah, really hammered the land on that um, five acres. Unfortunately, we made some poor decisions in the beginning and we spent a lot of time trying to repair the land after that. But one of the important things we did learn is biodiversity and the importance of thinking of a farm from a holistic standpoint, not just the farm itself, but the wildlife and the native plants associated within that farm footprint. And that was a, a mentality we took with us when we moved here to Northeast Washington. And we bought this 81-acre property that we're farming regeneratively. That means no tilling, no spray, you know, all of the organic style practices. But we take it a step further. And we look at 
habitat and wildlife populations? How can we increase biodiversity? How can we create good wildlife habitat? How can we farm in a way that makes room for wildlife and leaves the smallest possible human footprint on the landscape? And that is not an easy endeavor. It it requires huge commitments in time, energy, finances, but it's something we're really passionate about. So I like to tell people that you call yourself hunter, farmer, artisan. I always like to call myself hunter, farmer, conservationist. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. And it's, it's funny to me because hunter is in the beginning of that. Uh, and I, I don't think that's necessarily by mistake. I think that as hunters, those other values of conservation tend to precipitate down. I mean, I know that I wouldn't do what I do for wildlife as a whole. And I'm not just talking game species, you know, the native songbirds, um, even making space for the gophers, which we'll talk about them. (laughs) That's a dirty word in our house. It, well, I mean, certainly within the perimeter of any of the actual, uh, garden spaces, but the point is we, we make habitat for all sorts of animals and we're trying to increase the amount of different animals that show up on the property. But I wouldn't do that if I wasn't a hunter, and I'm pretty sure you wouldn't do what you've done either. Hunting makes you more aware of the wildlife and the habitats that they reside in, just because, and and I say this coming from someone who was a hiker and a backpacker for years, but hunting actually makes you engage with the wildlife and the landscape in a way that you're no longer a passive observer, you're an active participant. And you learn and experience so much more as a result. And that knowledge has translated to the farm in a way that just merely being a hiker outside wouldn't have accomplished. Yeah, you're part of the ecosystem at that point. Um, And that makes you want to behave more like a a citizen within it rather than just its controller. Um, Not that I don't think humans are, like our biological role, I think, is that of stewardship. Uh, which is why I want to talk a little bit, of course, about what's going on with how we're stu- stewarding things within the WBFW. Um, currently, obviously, we have a problem. We have an, a stacked deck of special commissioners who are not friendly to hunting, despite how often they say that we're not going to do away with hunting. They seem to keep deleting opportunities and mismanaging things into the ground. Especially with Melanie Rowland coming out with her most recent quote that hunters should be nervous. It's kind of hard to hear her say that and then believe that they're not anti-hunting in some form. Yeah, and she was also the one who was saying, we're not doing away with hunting. How many times do I have to say that? And my response to that is, well, as long as you keep diminishing opportunities and doing everything that the anti-hunting side asks for, then you are anti-hunting, it doesn't matter what you say. (laughs) But that's just, I don't know, logic. Let's talk a little bit about some of the changes that are occurring within the attitudes of the WDFW, how they're changing directives. And uh, one thing that I know you've looked at in depth is their utilization of language. We've talked a little bit about how they're trying to redefine what conservation means, which I think is insane, but that's not the only word they're attempting to get rid of. So what's the one that concerns you? So there's been a lot of throwing around of the phrase best available science, which 
That term really first came around from the Endangered Species Act of 1973. Basically, that required that agencies use, quote unquote, the best scientific data available when creating policies regarding the management of threatened species. But it was never actually formally defined. And the precedent has always been to leave it up to agency discretion or subsequent litigation. Now, when you're talking about best available science for, say, a wildlife biologist, that would include things like the scientific practices of impartiality, peer review, replication of data results, relevant literature. What it doesn't include is brand new science that hasn't had the time to be tested and peer reviewed and fully understood. So one of the things that concerns me with the commission is that they're basically taking scientific practices that are, you know, they've been in place for quite some time, they're nationally and internationally accepted, and they're going, well, this doesn't fit our agenda, so we're going to ignore it in favor of something shiny and new. And the other thing... New not necessarily being best available. Yeah, and the the other thing is that Washington, um, and I can't remember what year they did this, but Washington did legally define best available science, um, mostly related to anadromous fisheries, but it would still apply to game management. And they laid out all of this, and it's readily available for the commission, but the commission conveniently chooses to ignore it. Right. So, I mean, the best available science actually has some definitions that were laid down initially within the ESA, but they weren't defined until later. They kind of left that up to the state agencies to figure out what that means. Um, Which, you know, if we go with the existing definitions from the fisheries, we might be okay, but if we allow the WDFW to just say, well, we mean the newest, shiniest science that, like, they can cherry-pick their results so that they can get the result they want so that they can cancel things like cougar, bear, elk general season, probably elk in general once they've destroyed the population enough by allowing the predators to just run rampant without any sort of controls. Well, again, basically, you have to think of wildlife in this country as an artificial system. Mankind has altered the landscape so much, even in places like Alaska, that everything is artificially managed now. And you can't have an unmanaged variable in an artificially managed system. You will eventually result in an unbalance that could potentially cause total system collapse. This is coming to you from a uh, scientist by training here. (laughs) Right. And it's, it's frustrating when you have uh, commissioners who bring up, like, well, there's this new research that we need to look at, and that's what's best available. Or um, what really irritates me is when they're asking for science that hasn't been done, doesn't exist yet, which kind of flies in the face of the available part of best available science. You know, I feel like we need to go with the data we have not the data we want well i mean they're just looking for something to justify the new direction they want to head yeah and and that direction is as we've been saying for quite some time not really friendly to hunters which is kind of ironic too because one of the things i've never heard in any of the commission meetings or these proposals is how do you replace the funding that hunters contribute to wildlife conservation projects, you know, um, outdoor outreach. Right. I mean, just even if you only look at your Pittman-Robertson 
dollars. I mean, that's millions, if not billions of dollars. Uh, also, Dinkle Johnson, those, those funds are huge. And what's really important about that funding is that it is tied specifically to conservation. Um, whereas you have general funding things um, that come from the taxpayers, which I'm just going to say right now, hunters also pay for that. You know, we pay taxes and then we pay more money on top of that into these systems. Well, and, and one of the things, too, to think about is not just the Pittman-Robertson funds, but also when you have, for example, hunters coming in from out of area, not even necessarily out of state, but just out of area, they're paying generally for hotel fees, they're shopping at gas stations and grocery stores, they're bringing money into local economy, especially in rural areas. And those rural economies, too, where we could really use the money. And then another thing to think about as far as, you know, how how is the commission expecting to replace the funds brought by hunters is that I believe it was in the 1990s, there was a proposal to tax things like backpacks and outdoor gear to try and contribute funding to wildlife conservation, that sort of thing. And it failed miserably. People didn't want to pay extra taxes on the gear and the companies in particular were the ones who lobbied to get that proposition killed because they didn't want to have to deal with that tax. Yeah, the the CEO of REI said that it was just too much of a burden and that his customer base wouldn't accept it. Meanwhile, hunters, you know, lobbied Congress to raise the price of the duck stamp. Um, it just seems like people are inherently, and I, I hate to say this because it just sounds so cynical, but people in a lot of ways are very inherently selfish. Not a person, but people as a whole tend to be selfish. We can't just rely on overall generosity. We kind of have to make people's self-interest align with the interests of the group if we want society to function. And a part of that is saying, okay, well, you want to hunt, you're utilizing the resource, you need to take care of it. That is a that's a square deal, in my opinion. I'm totally okay with that. But what the WDFW wants to do is they want to broaden the base of people who are involved in the resource, who are involved in making decisions about the resource, but they have no mechanisms to broaden the base of responsibility, which pretty much falls fairly squarely on that of hunters and anglers. Yeah, it's not the most well-thought-out plan. <laughs> so, if you don't like that, I think that maybe it's time to write in. And one of the things that I think is really important is we always talk about, oh, we need to, you to show up at the public comment meetings. We need you to do that sort of thing. But that's not the only way to advocate. You spend a lot of time uh, raising awareness on social media, and you also spend a lot of time just writing to the legislators, which I really appreciate because that is a headache. What are some tips and tricks that you could offer our listenership for how to better communicate our message on you know, social media or when you're just writing in general or talking to friends? Like what, what can people do who don't wanna just get in front of everybody and jibber jabber in front of a bunch of strangers? Well, um, obviously, you know, speaking out at the meetings is important, but it is not the only way. Um, I really encourage you, write the commission, um, you know, leave commentary on these proposals, even write the governor. You know, we should have commissioners that 
don't try and get around their legal mandate. They are there to increase hunting opportunities and intelligently manage our wildlife, and they're not doing it right now. Some things to think about when you are writing in. Don't personally attack any of the commissioners. Yeah, they really hate that. We made we as the hunting community made that mistake early on and we got hammered for it. And it decreases our credibility when we do that. So no personal attacks. You can point out things that commissioners say or do that are questionable. Just don't name them. Yeah, just don't name them. I know it's not fair, but it it matters. Um the other thing I would say is, uh, oh, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> ah, how dare you? Um, you know, that's that's funny how that happens. Uh, farming leaves you clinically exhausted. I do apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, and you've been you've been doing a full deck farm schedule and a full deck uh, hunting schedule on top of trying to help with the the social media that I'm doing, the social media that you're doing, and um just trying to help along oh you came up i i, I kind of remembered my thought now thank you for that pause um i will also say one of the trends that i've seen in general in our hunting community that i just want to nip in the bud right now we are already a minority within just the national population I can't remember what it is, but it's a really small number of people who actually hunt. We do not need to divide within our ranks by pointing fingers. This is, you know, Democrats versus Republicans, you know, residents versus non-residents. No, it's not. This is about hunters fighting to save hunting. Let's stop pointing fingers at one another. Let's stand together shoulder to shoulder and fight for a way of cultural existence that we cherish and the wildlife entwined within it. Yeah, I can I can go ahead and disagree with somebody's political views in another forum, but when it comes to hunting, I I do want to see a little bit more um, solidarity with each other because I don't think that um, certainly hunters are not a monolith. I've seen hunters from all walks of life. We're going to talk to people on some pretty extreme ends of the spectrum on this show but they're all hunters and that should transcend any of our other disagreements so the more the more language we use that sows division within ourselves the the better off the anti-hunting side is going to be so i think we need to avoid that whenever possible possible and be as inclusive as we possibly can be towards each other um, that is a really good point. That is something that we can do in social media. And, and it's funny that you mentioned that we are a minority because the anti-hunting side constantly likes to utilize the fact that we are a minority um, to say that, well, you know, not everybody hunts, so why should you represent them rather than represent us, the bigger majority? Which, by the way, the anti-hunting side is also um, a minority. The majority of people are the people that you never hear from, really. The, the people who just don't even know this fight is happening. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it seems that the anti-hunting community, at least thus far, has been a little better funded and a lot better organized than hunters, and I would like to see that change. Yeah, I think I think we are actually starting to see that change a little bit. We're seeing a little bit more organization on our side. I know that people are getting involved in helping with speech writing 
that sort of thing, making sure that we organize our talking points when we are dealing with the commission so that we have a better message and more co cohesive message and we're not all saying the same thing in the me meetings, which is a big deal because you only get three minutes to talk. And that's a, another point I would make when you're thinking about writing into the commissioners and the governor is don't use a form letter. Those just get discarded and ignored. Use your own words. Even if you're utilizing the same points, make it your voice because that is going to stand out and matter and have an impact. Yes, I agree. Um, I think how.org is a great place to Absolutely. go to learn how to message people where you can go to send messages out and also just what issues are going on um, that's a huge aid in this fight and they've been involved in it since the beginning uh, but there's going to be a form letter that is attached to that and i absolutely do recommend rewriting that even if you just take the time to craft three sentences rather than just going with the form that shows that you wrote that out you thought that out and it's funny um i'm gonna be delving into this topic in a little bit more detail in another episode or an open letter to the commission probably both actually but we were recently accused howl specifically was accused of utilizing ai to generate their letters the the anti-hunting side didn't like that and i've definitely seen that the anti-hunting side utilizes bots um or at least i have that incredibly strong suspicion but i want to discuss that issue with the commission so that we can be better at identifying that in the future but the point is if a form letter keeps going through over and over and over they can actually utilize Excel to just match up that data and say, oh, well, all of these came from the same source. So they could write that off as, well, that's just one person doing it a thousand times. So it does make a difference that you use your own words whenever possible, because the anti-hunting side, especially as we get more organized, we get more vocal, we'll do everything and anything to diminish our voice, to cast us as a minority, which, by the way, shouldn't give them any right to destroy who we are. I feel like that's the entire point of a republic government is that you have the ability to protect minorities from the majority when the minority is likely going to have the highest negative impact from a decision. But that's just like my basic view of how the mechanisms of politics should work. <laughs> I just want to interject that we have these sorts of conversations when we're not even podcasting. It's a little snapshot of Ryan Garrett, the man. <laughs> yeah, this is this is unfortunately how I talk and how I think on a regular basis. It's a wonder you've stayed married. To this. Oh, I love you to pieces, babe. <laughs> well, um, is there anything that you would like to leave people with on the show? I know we're starting to get a little bit long in the tooth, and I want to talk about some other issues that I'm going to splice in. So I would just leave it as people, and I guess I should say hunters can look at this and say, well, this is just over in Washington state. This is just about bears or cougars and whatever. It doesn't matter to me. But what I've been trying over and over and over to say um, in all my social media posts, everything I talk about is that 
Washington State is ground zero in the fight to save hunting. And you and I first came up with that phrase, and it is so relevant to this because we are a proving ground for the anti-hunting groups. They are trying to see what works here, what can be done, and they're going to take those lessons and those successes and translate it to states across the nation. So hunters need to understand that this fight is about all of us. It's not a fight to save hunting in Washington. It's a fight to save the future of hunting. You can't just say, oh, Washington sucks. I'm going to move out of state or whatever it doesn't affect me because it will come for you this fight's coming to a state near you and the sooner you get involved in it and in fact if you get involved across state lines that just means that you're going to have more allies absolutely when it happens if you wait until it's come to your your door you've lost all the allies who have already been torched in this scorched earth policy that the anti-hunters are running um, and that is a fantastic note to end on. Uh, Jillian Garrett, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on here. If you like the idea of this show or you learned something and you want to show your support, you can go to Kofi.com. That's spelled K-O-F-I.com backslash hunter, farmer, artisan, and you can leave me a tip. I'm not looking to get rich or famous doing this podcast. I just want to get some good information out there. And your support helps pay for things like microphones and software licenses and such. Jillian was gracious enough to lend me a whole bunch of her material to include as show notes for this particular episode. So if you want to learn a whole bunch more about this issue, I recommend taking a look at those. In the meantime, this is the Hunter Farmer Artisan reminding you to fight for the things you love because it matters.